Amen. Good morning. Everybody doing all right today? Man, this is a great crowd in here this morning. It's so good to be with you, and it's really cool to have our elementary kids in here, uh, parents of elementary students. Uh, the greatest parenting tool is to model for your children, and you have this amazing ability this morning to model what it means to worship corporately uh, for your kids, and so I just want to encourage you uh, to think about that. Be mindful. So if there's ever a day to like take notes and like really engage, this is the day uh, your children are watching, and so I would encourage you uh, with that. So we've been in this Ephesians series now, as Tim mentioned, for a couple weeks, and something that I think is unique uh, about the letters of Paul, this being one of them, he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, the first half of the letter is really all about doctrine and theology, to, to drop a big term on you. It's orthodoxy, all right? It's the, it's the study of right teaching. That's what's happening in the first uh, three chapters. And then the last half is what we would call orthopraxy, which means right practice, okay? So it's very much laid out this way, which is pretty common for, for Paul to write in such a way that the first part is very deep, and it's rich, and it's meant to teach us and to challenge us and to correct our thinking if it needs to be corrected and all those kind of things. And then the last half is to, to challenge us to go out and do something with what we've learned. And uh, so today we're kind of getting near the end of this orthodoxy part, this theology part. And as I thought about uh, today and as we begin to study, I thought a lot about words. Uh, words are unique in the sense that without understanding and without context, words are meaningless, right? I mean, you can just say a bunch of words, but in the specific context, and with the right understanding involved with those that are, that are saying the words and hearing the words, uh, words can be huge. I mean, words can have great implications. You think about uh, the phrase, will you marry me? Pretty big deal, right? Many of you have said that phrase or heard that phrase. Some of you are praying that you'll hear that phrase soon. Um, will you marry me, right? Uh, the term welcome home. I remember when Jude, our son, is from one of our, one of our children from South Korea, I remember getting off the plane in Chicago and going through customs, and the border officer there said, hey, buddy, welcome home. Man, that was huge for us, right? Because we've been praying for this little boy for years, so that was a pretty big moment uh, for us. Uh, you're hired. That's a pretty big deal. You're fired. That's also uh, a pretty big deal. Uh, we're having a baby, right? Uh, not guilty. Uh, all right, what about I love you? I remember the first time I told Sonny, I love you. We were sitting in a car, and I said, I love you. And she said, thanks, and got out. <laughs> What's up with that, right? That happened. I'm not lying. That's, that really happened. Later, she said, I love you. But, um, but like words have great implications. And so today, we're going to hear a lot of words, um, but specifically two tiny words at the beginning of verse 4 that have the power to literally change our lives, both now and for eternity. The understanding of these words and the implication of these words is huge. And so my hope for today is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this morning my prayer is that you will leave this time being completely overwhelmed with the grace and mercy of God. We've already sung. We, you've heard the gospel sung. You've sung the gospel today because we've sung a lot about being taken from death to life. 
We've sung a lot about the mercy of our God. And so today, our, my prayer for you is, if you're a believer in Christ, that you just leave completely in awe of God's love for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've never given your life to Christ, today, I, I pray uh, that you will be confronted with your desperate need for him. Uh, today, that you would humbly submit yourself to him, that you'd repent of your sins, and that you'd place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Um, so if you have your Bible or some sort of device, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Scripture is going to be on the screen as well. So as you're doing that, let me give you uh, something that's kind of cool about this particular passage of Scripture on this day. Uh, so 500 years ago, this coming Tuesday, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Some of you, that means nothing to you. Uh, some of you, just a little bit of church history for you. That was the beginning of what we know as the Reformation. Uh, so Martin Luther and the other reformers were guided by the conviction that the church of their day had drifted away from the essential original teachings of Christianity, especially in regard to what it was teaching about salvation, about how you're forgiven of your sin and your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Reformation sought to kind of reorient uh, Christianity to the original message of Jesus and the early church. And that day uh, and the work of the Reformation really completely changed the landscape of the church, completely changed the, our understanding of, of the spread of the gospel around the world. And the Reformation had a rally cry. It's called the five solas. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just think it's really interesting and really helpful for us. So the first one is sola scriptura, which means uh, scripture alone is our authority. That was huge in that day uh, because the Catholics claimed that uh, scripture was fine, but the Pope also had authority, right? So when, when the reformers said, no, scripture alone is our authority. Uh, the second one was sola fida, meaning faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, meaning we are saved by the grace of God alone. Solus Christus, which means Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And then soli deo gloria, uh, we live for the glory of God alone. So why, why do I tell you that? Well, first of all, I think it's super important uh, for us, our generation, to remember that as believers in Christ, uh, we stand on the shoulders of faithful men and women uh, that, have, that have paved the way uh, for us. Um, many, many people died for this truth. They died because of their conviction to this truth and to keep the purity of the gospel. Uh, secondly, as I mentioned, this Tuesday, which is also Halloween, it's also known as Reformation Day. And it was 500 years ago, uh, this Tuesday, that this all started uh, with Martin Luther. And then thirdly, the passage that we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, was a primary text that was used to teach these truths. So in, in Martin Luther's study and the original conviction of, of his life, this was some of the texts that God used to begin to make him think, you know, maybe this isn't the way it's supposed to be done. Um, and we're so grateful now on this side of that great historical event that he did that and that God worked in his life in that way. So Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. God, this is your word, your good word for us today. And Father, we pause and we recognize the authority of your word. Father, uh, our prayer today is that a humble gratefulness would sweep over this room today. God, that you would do a work within our lives that would cause us to just be overwhelmed with your love for us. And then, Father, for our friends here today that don't know what it means to follow Christ and they've never surrendered their life to Christ, God, today, would you do the work of opening their hearts and drawing them to yourself. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, John Calvin, who wrote uh, probably one of the most thorough theological books of all time. It's called The Institutes. It's this massive collection of books. He opens, with, he opens his book with this sentence, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But today, as we walk through this passage, we'll see the power of this passage uh, because it does help us to see an adequate and realistic picture of ourselves and a glorious picture of our God. As I studied the passage, there were times, honestly, that I just had to kind of stop and, uh, and really consider what was being said, really consider and understand the weight of what is being said. Um, today we're going to get a little uncomfortable because nobody really wants to talk about sin. Nobody really enjoys the concept of let's talking about how bad we were. Um, but the reality is, unless we fully understand the, the depths of our sin and the way we were, we can never fully understand and embrace the love of God. It's impossible. So let's look at verse, chapter, verse 1. And you, starts out. Okay, so the way this is written, it's written to kind of cause us to look back. This and you, it's like he's changing his direction a little bit. Okay, so it causes us to look back at what was being said at the end of chapter 1. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul is uh, just loving the Ephesian church, right? He's telling them how grateful he is for them. He's telling them how much he loves them and how he prays for them consistently. And he talks about the power and the authority of God, specifically in Christ Jesus. And he talks about uh, the fullness of Christ and his authority is in us as his church. So the authority of Christ has been given to us as his church. And just as we're like, given high fives and chest bumps, Paul says, and you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't say you were bad. 
Paul doesn't say you were wrong or even just that you were sinful. Paul says we were dead. Obviously, Paul is not talking about a physical death here, but he is talking about a spiritual death. Well, what can dead people do? Nothing, right? Nothing. That, that's the point that Paul is making. When Paul wants us to see is that we were completely void of any hope, in complete desperation, and we were completely unable to do anything about it. And it's just not that this dead state was thrusted upon us, but it says that we actually walked in it. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul goes on to tell us, what does that look like? I know you're thinking zombies right now. Get that out of your mind. That's not at all what's going on. Um, But he says that we follow the course of the world. Uh, Follow here means to be in sync or to be in step, meaning we walk in step with the world or we fit in with the world. So I think in order to understand the the gravity of what Paul is saying, we must understand what the Bible teaches when it says the world. What what does that mean? Uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, obviously, this is not some statement about how we shouldn't love the lost or serve those around us. We, we understand that that's what we're called to do. But this passage shows us that the world, in this case, is in direct opposition to God. It's two trains going different directions. The things of the world are not the things of God. What this passage says is that there was a time when our priorities matched the priorities of the world and not the priorities of God. So people who are spiritually dead are wrapped up. They're consumed with the things of the world, walking in step with the world. He also says that when we were spiritually dead, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Now Paul is saying that those who are spiritually dead follow the ways of Satan. What? Is that really what what he's saying? I was uh, like seven years old when I came to faith in Christ. It was then that God uh, confronted me with my sin. I realized my need for God through the work of my parents and other faithful adults speaking into my life. God used those people to help me come to understand that I needed Jesus. And it was that time that he saved me. So when I was like four or five, well, I probably was following the ways of Satan. But if I wasn't, how how does that even work? to follow the ways of Satan. And and I don't understand this completely. But but we must remember that when we're talking about this time before salvation, uh, we're not necessarily just talking about acts, although there are evil acts. We're talking about our position before a holy God, our stance before God. 
Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. It says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. So what Paul is saying is that before the work of Christ in our lives, we were a people given to the ways of this world and to the ways of Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Notice there's no exclusion in that statement. Uh, I've known some incredibly godly people in my life, uh, people that I know experience a deep, intimate walk with the Lord. But before Jesus saved them, they were just as lost as the murderer on death row. Paul goes on to say, We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This concept of children of wrath, the, the term children uh, refers to birth, meaning, uh, meaning not something we, we became, but something we were born into. So hear this. So what Paul is saying is that we were born under the wrath of God. I know this isn't popular or fun to talk about, but I think it's so crucial that we understand our hopeless place before, before Jesus saved us. So here is our reality. We were dead. Not just bad, not just going through a hard time, but we were dead and incapable of doing anything about it. We were given to following the things of the world and the things of Satan himself. We were all about our own passions and desires and not deserving of God's love, but his wrath. Because God is holy, and his holiness will not allow him to tolerate sin. This is who we were. We were dead. The theological term that's often tied to this passage of Scripture is the term total depravity. And I, I think R.C. Sproul gives a good explanation of what's happening here in regards to the depth of our sin. He says, What is meant by the concept of total depravity is not that man is as wicked as he could possibly be, Bad as we are, we can still conceive of ourselves doing worse things than we do. Rather, it means that sin has such a hold upon us in our natural state that we never have a positive desire for Christ. Chapter 2 of Ephesians should always be read in close harmony with the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, where Jesus teaches that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. My old pastor used to say it's not that we are as bad as we could be, but we are as bad off as we can possibly be. So this is fun, huh? Are we ready to make a shift from this really despicable place uh, that our sin finds us in? This is where the transition of two tiny words literally change our entire lives. We're going to say these words together. Are you ready? Here we go. But God. That was weak. Let's try it again. Here we go. But God. But God. Do you get it? Were it not for this transition where we are a hopeless, desperate people that are in opposition to God, that are in rebellion to the things of God. Personally, I was a liar and a cheater, but God. I was full of pride and envy, but God. I was consumed with myself 
had no room to care for others, but God. Everything I did was really for the purpose of being seen and recognized by others, but God, and the list goes on and on and on. God has changed everything. But God, being rich in mercy, as we, as we look at this next section, I just want you to hear the character of God. I want you to see the character of God. But God, being rich in mercy, rich means in abundance. Uh, God is full of mercy. It goes on to say, because of his great love with which he loved us. God is full of love, and he chooses to show his love to us. The scripture uses two distinct words to describe God's character and kind of his approach to us. Mercy and love. It is God's mercy that keeps us from his wrath. We were children of wrath, but now we're children of mercy. It is God's love that causes him to have compassion on us. God is full of both mercy and love. There's this old hymn um, called The Love of God. It was written like in the 1940s. It's one of my favorite hymns of all time. Uh, But the third verse says this. Listen to this amazingly poetic, creative way to explain the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So imagine with me the ocean full of ink. The sky is a complete scroll. Every blade of grass is a pen, and every one of us and all of God's creation are master writers. In order for us to even come close to beginning to capture the love of God, we would drain every bit of the ocean, every blade of grass would be used, and we would tire ourselves out writing of the beauty and the love of God. The love of God is rich, my friends. The love of God is full, and he chooses out of his mercy to shower us with that love. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Again, this recognition of the fact that we were once dead, but Christ has made us alive. Who makes us alive? Christ did, right? Uh, in John 11, where, ja- where uh, Lazarus is dead, he's dead for four days, and who comes and who makes him alive? Jesus, right? Lazarus couldn't make himself come alive, and neither can we. It is Jesus who makes us alive. Verse 6, Paul says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, the term raised us up is the same phrase that's used in Colossians 2, 12 through 13. And listen to this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, this is going to sound really familiar, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us 
all our trespasses. So what is being said is the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raises us out of our spiritual graves and makes us alive in Christ. He says we are seated in heavenly places. This is so good. This is referring to our position in Christ. Uh, Romans 8 tells us that we have been made joint heirs with Christ. Remember, we were just children of wrath. Now we are being made joint heirs with Christ, meaning we have been adopted as his children. So as the church, when we look at one another, we see brothers and sisters. We see people who have been taken from death to life and are now the children of God. When Christ made us alive, he seated us in the heavenly places. He is recognizing our relationship with him as his children, but he's doing more than that. He's putting us in a position to someday when Jesus returns and takes us home, he's putting us in a position to someday reign with Christ for all of eternity. That's why in verse 7 it says, so that in the coming ages, meaning the, the eternal age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Meaning those of us who have been saved will stand as an example of God's loving kindness. I see it like this. Someday I will be in heaven and I will be in an exhibit, right? Angels will walk by and they say, see that guy Micah? You know, the one there he used to be kind of short and chubby, uh, but now he's like 6'3", 210 and all chiseled up, right? Because that'll be my glorified body. Are you with me? Okay. Can I get an amen? All right. So uh, the angels will walk by and they'll say, man, that guy was so lost. He was not worthy to be saved. He was a liar. He was full of pride and ego. But you know what? He's in heaven now. And it was only through the grace and kindness of God that he was saved and brought here. Guys, this is for the praise of God throughout all eternity. When we get in heaven, we're not going to be walking around saying how we got there. We're going to look to Jesus and say, that's how we got here. It's only because of his grace. It's only because of his mercy. I won't receive any credit, but I'll be joining with the angels singing the praises of God because he chose to save me. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, all attempts to get right with God by doing good works will fail. Think about it. If God had to give his only begotten son in order for us to be made right with him, how blasphemous must it be for us to say to God, you know, thank you, thanks God, but that wasn't enough. I still need to do some good things in order to be right with you. If we believe that we are saved by our works, we are basically saying Jesus and his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection wasn't quite enough. Or even worse, we're saying that that wasn't even necessary. Someday we will stand before God on the day of judgment and I do not want to be in that line depending on my good works to make me right with God. I want to be in that line saying, I had no hope. I was not worthy to be saved. There's nothing good in me, but God has saved me through the death of his son, Jesus. So now I'm made right with you, holy God. Our hope for salvation is only found in the grace of our God, shown in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Now, unless we believe that good works have no place, Paul kind of turns the corner here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship means masterpiece. Isn't that awesome? We are God's masterpiece, put on display, right? For the world to see and cause others to look to Jesus. And how does he do this? How does he use us as his masterpiece? He prepares good works for us to walk in. Uh, God gives us opportunities to show what he has done in our lives by calling us to good works. So no, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works so that Christ, our Savior, might be exalted. Brothers and sisters, this is good good news. The reality of the depth of our sin, though terrible it is to think about, is necessary for us to then look to a holy God and just be overwhelmed with his grace. I remember one day going with a friend to this event called Night of Worship. Some of you may know the name Dennis Jernigan. He was a worship leader, uh, still is a worship leader, uh, but he used to do this deal called Night of Worship at Metro Church in Edmond. Um, I, I remember the first time I went, I, I was sitting there, and to be real honest, it's a, it's a very lively group, okay? Uh, a little more charismatic than at least this Baptist boy was used to. Um, and so I'm sitting there, and, and quite honestly, I'm just kind of looking around, like, where am I, and what is going on? And a little bit, like, just kind of taken back by it all. And I was sitting next to a friend that was kind of a mentor to me in worship leading, and he could tell that I was troubled. <laughs> and he said, Micah, here's the deal. You have no idea what God has delivered them from. You have no idea. You have no idea what God has done in their life to deliver them and to give them this kind of freedom. And man, I was just like, oh, God. Because the reality is, no matter what my life was like before Jesus, before he saved me, I was desperate and hopeless and could do nothing about it, just like they were. So God, in his love and in his mercy, reached down and saved me. If you're a Christian here today, it's because God, in his love and his mercy, has saved you. You did nothing to deserve it, nothing you could do to earn the grace of God, but he chose to give it to you. So today, we're going to wrap up here in just a moment. Every one of us have the opportunity to respond in, in some way. It may be that today, for the first time, uh, you have a new understanding of what God has done for you. Many of us, uh, we've been believers for a while. And so as your response to this is really a couple things. One, walk in humble gratitude of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. The reality that of what God has done should provoke in us the, a great desire to pursue humility. Christians should be the most humble people in all the world when we recognize what God has done for us and what we could not do for ourselves. Two, develop a broken heart for lost people. The truth is those who do not know Jesus still live as dead people separated from God. 
God has given us the role of sharing this amazing truth with them. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. Understanding the desperate place of those who don't know Jesus should challenge us all the more to step into this role as ambassador and to boldly share the truth of Jesus Christ. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, and maybe today for the first time, you have a new understanding of what God has done for you and your desperate need of a relationship with Jesus. Well, you may be asking, how do you respond to this? Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you hear this amazing grace that God has shown you, an obvious question is how do we receive that, right? Will you receive it by believing, believing it so much that you're willing to place your faith in this truth, not only faith for today, but faith for all of eternity. And let me just say, friends, if you're hearing this and you believe it, it's because God Almighty has opened your heart to receive this truth. It's not because I spoke and eloquently convinced you. It is because God is working in your life and he's opening your heart and he's allowing you to hear this truth and respond to this truth. Romans 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is Jesus who saves and only Jesus. So we're gonna sing a song together. We're gonna have some of our prayer team up here to either side and myself be up here and Tim will be up here. And man, if today you're realizing for the first time in your life that you've never surrendered your life to Christ and the reality is you're still living as a dead person in desperate need of the Lord to save you. And we'd love to talk to you about what does it mean to confess your sins, to place your faith in Jesus Christ and to believe in him. Or it could be that you wanna just come down here and you wanna just pray and in humble gratitude, just say, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for taking this dead person and making me alive. So as we sing this song that's gonna challenge us and provoke us in that way, I just wanna tell you this altar is open. Our prayer team is available. They're ready and willing to pray with you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your love. God, your mercy that is rich and full. God, your mercy that has taken us from being children of wrath and you've made us your adopted children. So now you call us your sons and your daughters and we call you Abba, Father. And we thank you for that. Father, I do pray for my friends here today that they don't know what it means to follow Jesus, to live in a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that today you would do the work of salvation in their lives. That you would draw them to yourself in your loving mercy. And we thank you for this tremendous truth and the life change that it brings to each and every one of us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.